Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by State Historian Emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. On April 27, 1777, British and American forces fought fiercely in the Battle of Ridgefield. It was the key encounter of the deepest British attack into the interior of Connecticut throughout the American Revolution. Nearly two and a half centuries later, a Ridgefield homeowner making basement improvements uncovered the skeletons of four men who may have fallen in that battle. This discovery prompted the most in-depth archaeological and historical investigation of the Battle of Ridgefield ever undertaken. Earlier this year, during a weekend of commemoration, the Ridgefield Historical Society hosted a presentation in which historian Keith Jones, state archaeologist emeritus Nick Bellantoni, state archaeologist Sarah Sportman, archaeologist Kevin McBride, and historian David Nomag of Heritage Consultants describe how their work is recasting what we know about this critical moment in Connecticut history. Rediscovering the Battle of Ridgefield begins now on Grading the Nutmeg. It is wonderful to be here tonight to talk about this moment. We are on the threshold of celebrating the 250th anniversary of American independence at a moment when I think this country more than in many, many, many decades needs to be reminded of the cost of freedom and the importance of what was won in the streets of Ridgefield and other places 250 years ago. And in Connecticut, the Battle of Ridgefield is arguably the most important, certainly one of the very most important moments in that Revolutionary War fight for freedom. And what is so exciting about right now is that this is a moment of, for historians and archaeologists, it's a moment of incredible discovery. The, if you think the past is static, it's not. History, history, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it expands as we learn more. And as you all know, things have happened in Ridgefield that have just led to an explosion of information we want to share tonight. I'm happy to be here with a group of people who are my favorite colleagues and one of my favorite history writers um, to tell this story. And what we're going to do is we're going we're to go back to the story most of us learned about the Battle of Ridgefield, which is a story that was told 20 years ago by Keith Jones in Farmers Against the Crown. And what Keith is going to do, he'll be our first speaker, and he's going to come up and he's going to reprise for us the story of the Battle of Ridgefield that we know and learn because of his book. A little story that I think Keith doesn't know is my predecessor, a state historian, Christopher Collier, who was a wonderful state historian, but he was, he, he, he was not one who gave out compliments easily or generously. He blurbed Keith's book and praised it, not just for the knowledge, but for the quality of the writing. So if you haven't read it, I urge you all to, um, and if you have read it, read it again. So we'll have Keith, and you know what, I'm gonna stop there. I think I'll introduce each group of people as they come up, 
Keith Jones, come tell us what we knew, and then we'll talk about what we found, and we will close with what we're finding out. So, Keith Jones. Again, to the uh, Symphonic Orchestra of the really rocking stuff. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. Okay. But history rocks too. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to rock some history. Thank you, Walt, for the kind uh, introduction. And I guess all I need to do is cue myself. Cue me. Okay. April 27, 1777. Every Ridgefielder knows this story by now. And I'm not going to tell you the whole story of the battle. What I am going to tell you is where I started out when I was in Tracy Seams' position 21 years ago. 21 years ago. And we were doing the 225th anniversary reenactment of the Battle of Ridgefield. And I started wondering, well, what really happened? I was president of the Historical Society. I should know what, what really happened uh, at the Battle of Ridgefield. Now, every Ridgefielder... You can't buy a house in this town without memorizing this part of the Battle of Ridgefield. We all know there were three engagements, right, 21 years ago. The General Wooster was wounded, and there's a marker on North Salem Road. That the Stebbins house had a barricade, and people died there, and Benny Donald had his horse shot up from beneath him. And all kinds of anecdotal tales. There were cannonballs in houses and red petticoats hanging from uh, windows. What bothered me, though, was this is the skeleton of the history. Where is the body? Where, where is the muscle? What really happened on the ground? So I set out to pull together what happened to the Battle of Ridgefield from the fighting man's, infantryman's point of view on the ground. So the first place I turned was to this gentleman. Now, this is not the young Rudy Marconi as first selected. <laughs> He's been first selected a long time, but this, this is not the young Rudy. This is Governor Tryon of New York, who was the brainchild from the whole expedition of burning the Continental Supplies in Danbury and getting the troops back home so he could boast about it in London and get what he really wanted was to be set up as a head of all the loyalist activity in Western Connecticut. Uh, he was out for his own ambition. Uh, he was governor and he headed the expedition, but as I told the kids this morning uh, at Eastridge, uh, he was a figurehead. Sir William Erskine is the British general who ran the British army on the ground during this and gets no credit that today we have the tyrant. That's how, that's how history works sometimes. So I set out to say, where did I find information that's first-hand primary source? And I went to the Sir William Howe who submitted the report to London of the Tryon expedition. I went to Benedict Arnold who submitted a report of what happened during the Tryon raid. And both of these were very self-serving. Uh, they overestimated the number of enemy killed, and they didn't say a whole lot about the Battle of Ridgefield. Next step, went to other British sources, and I found there are three schools of thought 21 years ago on what happened that day in this town. The British basically saw it as a brief skirmish. This is what the newspaper in, uh, in New York, British New York, said a few days after the Battle of Ridgefield, a minor skirmish carried after small opposition with considerable loss on the side of, of the rebels. An eyewitness from the British Army, engineering officer uh, uh, Archibald Robertson, a uh, pretty straightforward writer, you can trust what he has to say, we immediately attacked the village and drove them off and took position. I mean, 
that is a military man's one statement superior. If, if our generals in Vietnam could have written this tersely, we would have gotten to the bottom of things much faster. But he didn't give it much credit for the Battle of Ridge Hill. A hundred years later, the English point of view is pretty much capsulized by the leading historian of the day, uh, Sir George Trevelyan, who said, desultory, isolated raid aiming at no solid military advantage, foredoomed to disaster, and exceptionally irritating to the local inhabitants. <laughs> this is the British point of view. How can you write of what happened on the ground on April 27th from this stuff? The second school of thought was pretty much mainstream historians, which said the Battle of Richfield, or whatever happened in Richfield, was part of a four-day raid in which the Danbury stores were destroyed and the British went back to their spit. It was simply part of a, of a bigger picture. And this was pretty much carried on from Dawson in 1858 all the way through one of our finest bicentennial historians, Howard Peckham, in his campaigns of the revolution, that it was a four-day affair, and it was all uh, a burn and run, uh, not one of the uh, top-tier events that happened during our country's uh, uh, war for independence. But there was a third school of thought, and that was the one I wanted to go deeper on, and that was, this was a battle. This was a true <coughs> Revolutionary War battle, the largest inland battle in Connecticut during the Revolution. And so I set out to try and provide some credibility to that particular statement. Uh, I had some help. Uh, four local historians had all written their take in which they identified a lot of actions that were below the radar. Uh, and their, their, their consensus, yes, a battle happened here, whether it was Grumman, uh, Revolutionary Stories of Soldiers of Reading, or Rockwell and Bedini, our own local historians. Uh, however, these people were still pretty short on primary eyewitness uh, source documentation. So my mission was to go deep, primary source. Uh, first was Johnston. Johnston in the 1890s put together with Connecticut archives as many individual soldiers who participated. He came up with 130 names, that's in the, in the parens there. The McDonald Papers in Westchester County, uh, they were published in 1926, but they were written in the 1850s. Uh, 141 people who actually lived during the Battle of Ridgefield and the, the, this part of the war, and who spewed their guts on what they thought they remembered to this guy, and then it stayed with the, uh, the Westchester County Historical Society for uh, almost uh, 80 years. 141 interviews, eyewitness. I went to 16 historical societies, mostly Fairfield County, and came back with 29 eyewitness accounts. People were there on the ground. And then there were government pension records, which at that time you couldn't get online. Uh, you had to go to the National Archives, uh, and I didn't do that. And then I went to Town Hall, and I went through every single land transaction from the founding of Ridgefield in 1708 to 1777 to put together a map of who lived where when. So I pulled all of this together way back in the ancient days of 2001 and 2002, and came up with this map. Now, what I had to do, if this is a battle, if this is a battle, we have to show there was an order of battle on both sides. It wasn't just a bunch of forces that ran into each other and started firing. There had to be order of battle. That hadn't really been clearly stated, and I surely haven't offered the finished documentation on that. I think uh, heritage consultants will bring a lot more to the party there. There had to be some tactical execution of command uh, within that battle that went on, that was documented. And there had to be casualties. Uh, 
sorry folks, you know, people don't die. You can't say you're a, a Revolutionary War uh, 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 battle. You, you, it had to prove that. And so I pulled it all together on this map. The houses are those black dots. The white dots are, are squares are loyalists. Uh, and there are only about 45 houses on, the, on, on Main Street at that time. No really businesses. They were just farms, really, that uh, cleaned up front yard. Uh, the big black, brown dots there are cannonballs that over time have surfaced through Ridgefield, at least up to uh, uh, 2001. There have been more, actually, since then. Uh, and the arrows are the British, who I, I surmise they did not just overcome the barricade and drive down Main Street. They had flanking assaults and came down parallel streets and drove through the town. There was the action at this Keeler Tavern we've all heard about. There were some houses that were burned. They swept through town, they camped for the night. Uh, it was a, a clear-cut uh, uh, British uh, uh, victory, no matter how you, how you dress it up. Uh, but 500 men under Benedict Arnold against 2,000 British professionals uh, with your objective to stall for time, uh, uh, they did what they could. So let me take you then to the scene of most of the action we know, which is the Stebbins House. You're on Main Street, many of you have seen this before. This is Main Street, Ridgefield, uh, after the Civil War. Uh, so we can't get back to the revolutionary time, but this, this town doesn't change like uh, the world seems to be changing around us as rapidly. And it was a dirt road with some mature trees, and the Stebbins House on the right was there during the Battle of Ridgefield. This is the Stebbins House, and the barricade was right across the road, just uh, in advance of the house. So in homing in on the Stephens House, which is, if we're talking skeletons and who died there, the action of the barricade uh, was still the primary component of the running battle at Ridgefield. We see a marker. Many of you have probably seen this marker. It says, died eight patriots who were laid in these grounds, companioned by 16 British soldiers. I tried to research the background on this. There is no evidence as to where those numbers came from who they were, or even if they're there, uh, they're laid in these grounds, not under this marker. Uh, which is so exciting about the, uh, the skeletons that have been discovered, is that ties into these grounds, which, which are nearby, and opens up, well, you know, what else is there? But the question now becomes, all right, who were they? Who were the people who died uh, in Ridgefield? Now, we have a pretty good handle from the British side, because Sir William Howe, submitted a report for the whole four days, but we don't know how many died in Ridgefield versus how many died in the four-day uh, raid. We do know that 23 were killed uh, during that uh, uh, four days, and 92 were wounded, and 27 were missing, and most of the missing uh, were likely killed uh, and were left to be buried by somebody. There were no officers killed on the British side, and there were no Hessians uh, uh, present whatsoever. What we're dealing with is 1,500 crack British uh, infantrymen, 300 loyalists in brand new green uniforms in the uh, Prince of Wales Loyalist uh, American Regiment, mostly Connecticut men who uh, chose sides, uh, and some artillery and, and some cavalry. So the question is, on the British side, how many of those 50 killed were in, in, in Ridgefield versus Danbury and Campo, et cetera? My guess is that at least half. From the Crown side, or from the Patriot side, it is really confusing for me, and it still is. The British sources said that they killed seven American officers and a hundred privates over four days. Benjamin Stebbins, remember his house? He was in the house during the whole affair. He says between 40 and 50 Americans lost their lives. Benedict Arnold, who was there, 
said Lieutenant Colonel Gold and about 20 were killed and wounded in Ridgefield and at Campo as the British were evacuating onto their ships. So how many of those were Ridgefield? Hard to say. The best call was probably Militia General Benjamin Silliman, who was also here, and there were mostly his militia who fought and died, said Lieutenant Colonel Gold and eight or nine others were killed at Ridgefield. So that's quite a spectrum of who might be underground still, even though we've, we've recovered some. So my research came up with this, that clearly Lieutenant Colonel Gold was killed, and Lieutenant Hezekiah Davenport and Ephraim Middlebrook of Stamford of the 9th Militia Regiment were killed, and William Stratford of the 4th Militia, Connecticut Militia Regiment from Stratford was killed, and eight privates. So what we have is, is 12 that I could say with confidence are, are dead there. But uh, a historian who followed me with another book came up with another name that he proved pretty irrefutably was killed here. So there were at least 13, not 12, from, from what I can tell. Then who is actually going to be in the coffins that are going to be interred uh, this weekend? My best shot, and this is in descending order, is most likely those unidentified skeletons, I would think, are Connecticut militia, uh, which we know that at least eight uh, were killed. Second most likely is the British 15th Regiment of Foot. They led the primary assault on the barricade and they had eight killed and two missing over the four-day period. So just going by the odds, uh, those two have the high numbers. But you have the Loyalists, Prince of Wales American Volunteers, who had seven killed during the four-day raid. How many of them were here? So number three in the who, who might be buried there in, in the Keith Jones scale is is the American Volunteers, the Prince of Wales. But, there, but wait, there's more. Uh, British 44th Regiment of Foot was also in the primary assault, and they had three killed during the four-day affair. Could one of them be here? Who knows? Then we have the British 4th Regiment of Artillery. They had two additionals killed. Additionals, uh, a British battery at that time would have eight to 10 possible people serving it, and the additionals were basically hulking musclemen moved the piece around. They weren't gunners, they weren't rammers, they weren't servers of artillery, they were physical bodies moving it around. So if we find some really big, thick bone skeletons, possibly there were a couple of the artillerymen, but they wore uniforms with their regiments engraved on it. So the mystery that Nick will unveil is, are there any regimental designs on the uniforms, on the skeletal remains that were found up? We'll find out. And then last is the British 23rd Regiment of Foot. Five killed over four days, but most of those we suspect were in the Wooster affair that happened on the route, route from Danbury. So that's where I started 20 years ago and uh, tried to stay current on the book. But I must say technology and the work that uh, Nick Bellatoni and the, the forensic work at Yale and elsewhere have added to the skeletons, plus the phase one research work for the National Park Service grant done by Heritage Consultant takes us really to a, a, another level of, uh, of understanding. And since I'm really talking about the past here and these, these guys are dealing with the present, I think uh, uh, I will bid adieu with the word of saying, you who live in Bridgefield, cherish what you have. Uh, other parts of the country just don't have not only the heritage, but the pride in the community, the trust in one another, and, and the 
belief in wanting to grow to make us better people and a better country. And, and just being here for four days uh, really fills me up. So thank you. Great storytellers write great books. It's called Farmers Against the Crowd. If you haven't, you must. So that's what we knew. And then something happened, and I'm just going to get out of the way of that story except to say, three years ago in, on a December day, I'm sitting in my office, I get a call from Nick Bellantoni. Whenever I get a call from Nick Bellantoni, I know something's going to happen, but sometimes something really happens. He says, Walt, I don't know what you're doing, but you need to come to Ridgefield. And that's all I need to hear from Nick, uh, state archaeologist and Sarah Sportman. They... What I saw changed my understanding of the revolution, in some ways changed my life, and uh, it's certainly changing the history. So, Nick Valentoni, Sarah Sportman, the state archaeologist emeritus and the present state archaeologist of Connecticut, they're both here because this story matters that much. This means I'm retired, but it doesn't seem like it. We've been very busy, and this this is one of our, you know, really notable uh, projects that came in toward the end. Um, and I call it four possible revolutionary war families because, you know, the way we work, and there's still work that needs to be done. Uh, Sarah will explain a, a bit more about that. Um, we deal with this as a hypothesis. Are they revolutionary? And then we test that hypothesis through a number of scientific, forensic, archaeological, and historical uh, information uh, that we could put together. So um, what I'm going to present is the, what happened out there, what we did, how we excavated, um, and then Sarah will present some of the material of where we're going from here. I just want to uh, plug Connecticut archaeology before we get to Ridgefield, but Ridgefield is a very important part of that, as you know. Um, and that is, as we approach um, the 250th anniversary, um, we have a lot of archaeological sites that are a part of Connecticut archaeology that are associated with the Revolutionary War. Of course, the Radon Danbury and the Battle of Ridgefield has become extremely prominent, and especially with the, with the discoveries. But, you know, right next door in Reading, you've got Israel Putnam's uh, winter camps there, and those have received archaeological attention since the 1970s. Um, the Battle of Fort Worcester, named after General Worcester, who lost his life here, is in New Haven, and that was attacked by the British uh, in um, 1779. And that is an archaeological site. That's actually an archaeological, state archaeological preserve. And of course, the Battle of Fort Griswold up in Groton Heights, uh, where Benedict Arnold, at that point in 1781, was on the British side and attacked New London and Groton Heights. In fact, um, I cut my I cut my archaeological teeth at Fort Griswold in 1974 when we were involved with uh, Central Connecticut State University and doing some excavations there. So it's kind of you know the beginning of my career, and here we back are with the Revolutionary War in Griswold. Uh, certainly at, at the other side. And then also we have a series of French military camps. Rochambeau, as he moved his armies to and fro Connecticut, have left campments here. So we have a real 
archaeological heritage here in the American Revolution. Um, and, you know, we're just, just thrilled that the science of archaeology, working with the science of history, can give us more insights to what we have. As uh, Keith mentioned, the casualties are unclear. But when I got the call about this and about a skeleton being found in a, in a basement of a house, um, I, I had already been here a few years earlier doing ground penetrating radar, actually looking for the possibility of mass burials. The radar was terribly inconclusive. But as I'm driving down here, I'm kind of like, could this be? Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to answer those questions before too long. Um, just a couple of slides here, we don't really need to go through, but other that other burials have been found in 1874 in the north end of town, uh, and, um, and also a number of uh, enemy uh, buried here. The British, as far as we know, stripped their, many when they could, they stripped their soldiers and buried them on the battlefields. We know that occurred in Lexington and Concord, and we suspect it, it would also happen here in um, uh, in Reddit. So this all starts as, uh, you know, as a criminal investigation because they're doing construction, they're in the basement of a house, lowering a dirt floor, and in the process of that, human remains were uncovered, skeletal remains. And, uh, you know, uh, what you do at that point is obviously contact the police because it needs to be determined whether we're dealing with a modern criminal investigation or whether these are, in fact, historic remains. The state medical examiner was contacted by the Bridgefield Police Department. They sent their forensic anthropologist, uh, Dr. Kristen Hartnett-McCann, down here, and she recovered the, the first burial. Um, and um, she was able to, in examination of the bones, it was pretty clear that the remains were at least 100 years old, if not more. So um, we knew this was, uh, she knew right away that this was not part of a modern criminal investigation, but historic burials, whether it was a family burial or whatever uh, we would have to work. So anyhow, uh, by state statute, when we get these cases where the burials are 50 years old or more, it is turned over to the state archaeologist to assume the investigation at, at that point. And that's when I said, uh, when we came down here, I'm driving down here from Yukon, and I'm like, could this be? Uh, but, you know, we don't want to prejudice, we don't want to have preconceived ideas, we want to make sure if we do determine who they are. We're on good, solid scientific ground. But certainly, the hypothesis that this was from the Battle of Ridgefield was on our mind. So this is the remains that were recovered by the medical examiner's office um, and excavated by uh, Dr. Uh, Hartman McCann. Um, and the question is, is this an individual from uh, a fallen soldier from the Battle of Ridgefield? The bioanthropology, looking at the bones and, and, and uh, Look at the, examining them just through gross morphology, just what the book's called. It's clearly an adult male, 25 to 45 years of age, big guy, about 5 foot 11. Now, it doesn't sound too tall here in our uh, day and age, but you go back to the, the late 18th century, um, and uh, you're talking about a pretty good sized individual. No trauma, she had, she's found no trauma on the bones, um, and no associated artifacts. But when we came in, we started a, a wider excavation, and that's when we came up with a second burial that was uncovered. Uh, and you see it here. This burial was found 15 feet south of the original skeleton that the medical examiner uh, worked on. And it was in a similar orientation, east-west. So head to the west, 
feet to the east, laying literally uh, ready for uh, the rising sun. And basically, this is a classic Christian mortuary practice in colonial and historic New England, where you were laid so that as you lay in the ground, you face the east, and on the day of resurrection, Christ will come up with the sun out of the east and draw you out of your housing. So you will join in that. We don't do that today. We put you in like a subdivision today, as many plots as we can get. But back then, they adhered to these Christian principles, and it became very important that they laid in the ground in the appropriate way. So now I'm saying, well, maybe these, this is an old burial ground, a family burial ground, uh, you know, which were very common here in, in Connecticut. So we continued the excavations, and uh, we were, um, uh, really, we were blessed with some wonderfully, extremely cooperative property owners who, um, you know, if you remember, this happened at the beginning of December, and um, we completely disrupted their holidays, but they were just wonderful. They understood the potential historic significance of these burials, and they worked with us constantly. We could not have done what we did without the cooperation we got there from them. We were also assisted by uh, UConn graduate students from the Anthropology Department, friends of the Office of State Archaeology, and uh, Archaeological Society of Connecticut that all came in volunteering their time to assist in the removal. And you can see in the photographs, we're dealing with in a basement, uh, and we're dealing with under, remains under foundations. So while we're doing the second burial, a third burial gets uncovered, and laying right next to uh, the second one. So you've got two, three right together, um, and they're, in, they're commingled. They're not laid out separately. We have no evidence of any coffin remains. There are no nails um, suggesting boards. These people were actually buried in the same grave shaft, okay? Um, so they were hastily, it looks like, buried. Now we see some things like that with smallpox. Smallpox was very contagious back in, in those days. Washington almost lost his army before he inoculated his troops. Um, so, you know, those barriers for smallpox victims were very quick. And so, could this still be a burial ground? Here's a kind of a more of a drawing of a schematic of what these two individuals look like. And they are, you can see the arms are overlapped. They were put in what was really a shallow grave from what we could uh, demonstrate from uh, the stratigraphy. Uh, and literally put in east-west orientation. You can see the heads are tilted to, uh, you know, toward their, over their right shoulder. But one was put in and another on top of it. So these are clearly hastily commingled burials that we do not normally see uh, in a Christian burial ground, um, where everyone, we so, sometimes see stack coffins in the same burial shaft, but in this case, they are hastily prepared. And the forensics of these young men, uh, these are adult men about the same age as the one the medical examiner came up, and uh, while the stature and so forth hasn't been completed yet, these are also are very large men. We also found with them, within the skeletal remains, some uh, you know brass copper stains. Um, and also, you can see the dark stain next to it. We also found some, what we thought maybe might be textile, some organic material, um, part of a great coat, waistcoat, we weren't quite sure. Uh, but Sarah will tell you a little bit more about what, these, what we uncovered with these buttons. But it was very important that we, we had that. It turns out that uh, two individuals, uh, well, we haven't gotten quite to the, to the fourth one yet, it had uh, 
a waistcoat or a jacket on, and two were completely naked, the boots, buckles, buttons uh, associated with them. Um, so here you see a close-up of, of uh, burial number two. You, you probably can't see, but if you, if, you, if you go along the spine, and you can see the, the rib cage, if you go along the vertebral column, um, you might pick out some of the, uh, the buttons, because they literally came down the breast of the, of the uh, not on the side, but literally down the front of, of, of the chest. And I would also say, if you look at that, um, man, it, it, it's a very, it was a very difficult excavation. Usually when we find burials, we usually find them in kind of a sandy soil, you know, a glacial till that is very easy to dig into, but also, for archaeologists, fairly easy to excavate. These burials were in pockets of clay, and clay is a very rough material. Even at the laboratory, Gary Aronson has been working at Yale, has had to add solution to break away some of the uh, soil from, um, from like the rib cage. So for example, you see that rib cage, you can see, you know, it was so fragile, the bone was so decomposed, and uh, the soils were so difficult to work with it that we could not just pick up each rib. What we did is an archeological technique of pedestaling and blocking. So we took the whole, uh, if you will, chest cavity up. Now that's gonna be important in terms of the analysis too, because we can now look at the soils inside the chest cavity to see if there's any pathogens or anything there that might also be indicative. So a great deal of science, we'll still have to go, but um, very intriguing remains. And then a fourth burial was covered, and if you look at that dark line that kind of zigzags there to the right, to your right, that is under the foundation. So what we found, what we had is we had three individuals again overlapping each other, going right under the foundation. This portion of the house it was expanded um, in the eight, uh, in the 19th and in the early 20th century. And when they expanded at this point, they unwittingly, not even knowingly, came and put that foundation just immediately above within you know, 15 centimeters, if not less, of the burials themselves. They could not, they didn't know, obviously, they were there, or if they did, they just covered them over. I don't know what was going on there. But this is an extension of a house that eventually covered these remains. They would have been open uh, in an earlier time frame. And also our colleague, Gary Erickson from Yale University in the uh, anthropology department who runs the bioanthropology laboratories there who is spearheading the forensic analysis that we're doing. Uh, we called Gary and he came out and, uh, to help us. And you can see how we're at, they're actually working underneath that foundation. It was a very difficult. Usually archaeologists like to come down, you know, uh, horizontally down onto a burial. But we didn't have that luxury here on uh, this individual. We had to actually come in vertically underneath. So, and it was, you know, we were very concerned about the house <laughs> and, our, and our safety. So, um, but we were able to, uh, working with the property owner, we were able to get uh, the, 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 the remains out. We found uh, 37 brass buttons, two pewter buttons. Uh, Sarah will tell you about those. Uh, and again, two of the burials were stripped of clothing. Um, two possibly wore waistcoats or jackets. But no, um, no boots, no, no sign or evidence of, of, of pants or anything like that. It was just the shirt that was uncovered. And then finally, when we were done, 
um, you know, we wanted to be sure we were done. And one of the things we then did is uh, a geophysical technique called ground penetrating radar. It sends a you know a radio wave into the ground. It bounces from a you know a transmitting antenna. It comes back to the receiving antenna. And it gives you kind of a squibbly squat, but it tells you whether there's something below. So we scanned uh, the property, not, and also in the basement, and we're, you know, we could be pretty confident that there are no other remains other than these particular individuals. So we got one individual that looks like it's by itself, and then we have uh, those three that are commingled in a common grave. So the hypothesis is, you know, are these burials from the Battle of Ridgefield? Well, the preliminary support of the hypothesis is that all the burials, all four of them, are adult, robust males. There are no women, there are no children based on the skeletal remains. And we would expect that demographic pattern if, in fact, we were dealing with a family burial ground. Because back in those days, the majority of the cemeteries are children because so many kids died young. Um, uh, a colonial woman could expect to lose a third of all of her children before they reached adulthood. That was just a fact of life back then. But these are all men. There are no signs of coffins. There's no burial shrouds, no coffin nails. Uh, the soil is in pockets of hard clay, which you don't usually bury in your dead end if you don't have to. So it does not appear to be a family burial ground. The burials are shallow. We have a common grave. The bodies appear to have been very hastily put into it. Um, two individuals are stripped of clothing. Two still wore clothing, as I mentioned before. And the location is on a battlefield uh, that we are uh, very familiar with. What rejects the hypothesis is, at least in the field, we have found no evidence of trauma on any of these skeletons. So that may change with the forensic laboratory analysis, which we'll look at more detail. Uh, but certainly from field observation, just like the medical examiner's office, found no evidence of any trauma. And there were no basketballs. Uh, no firearms, nothing uh, 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 that we had, and no formal uniforms uh, that we that survived in terms of the textiles. So, um, you know, I like to treat this as a hypothesis, but it's a very strong hypothesis. And I think what's coming is that we will be able to absolutely not only determine uh, who these individuals are, but um, tell a, a great deal about their life histories individually and collectively. So I just want to you know, say thank you to a whole bunch of people. First of all, the property owners that were just, just so helpful to us and, and put up with me for over a month uh, coming to their house. And, uh, uh, and certainly the Richfield Historical Society, Sharon Dunphy was out there with us every day supporting us. If we needed something, she ran out and got it for us. And the Ridgefield Police Department, man, those guys were great. They were there with us also, uh, helping us out with any needs that we had and securing uh, the property while we're there. And, uh, you know, Rudy's first selectman's office, you know, have been helpful through the whole thing, the whole town government. And, of course, you guys as the Ridgefield citizens, I got to tell you, you have embraced this, and rightfully so, because it's who you are. And um, I can't thank you enough for all of the, you know, the support you've given us and the support you will give the continual researchers in uh, not only the history, but the archaeology that's still yet to be done. So thank you.
Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the artifacts that we found with the burials and what they've told us so far. And then after that, I'm going to talk a little bit about what our plans are for the next steps um, in terms of the analysis of the human remains that, that were recovered um, back in 2019. Um, and give you a little bit of information about you know, the types of analyses we hope to do, our partners in working um, on those analyses, and the types of information we to be able to glean from that work. Um, so, um, as Nick said, there were initially, um, in the excavations, the only artifacts really recovered at the time were buttons, and there were 39 buttons from burials two and four. Um, 37 of those were a brass alloy material, and two um, were made of pewter. So, and if you look at this, um, this is a kind of a close-up of the sketch that Nick showed. It shows you the two burials, burials two and four, and the position of the buttons as they were encountered during the excavation. So you can see, as he said, um, you know, they're going down the center line, the chest of one of the burials. You can also see some maybe um, along some of the arms and up near the neck. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Um, so before I do that, I just want to talk a little bit about um, metals in the archaeological record and the conservation of those materials. So um, metals are, in general, inherently unstable. And after they've been buried for a long time in the ground, um, that is exacerbated, right? There's a strong tendency towards corrosion with metal uh, artifacts. Um, and once they're in the ground, they've kind of reached a stasis. And when you take them out and expose them to the air at different moisture levels, it really kind of speeds up the process of deterioration in many cases. So an important thing to do when you have archaeological metals and you want to you know, preserve them is to do some conservation. So you can see just some examples here. Um, this is an iron key, just to give you a sense. I'm sure you've all seen the rust on iron, right, and what can happen, that big kind of chunky corrosion or the kind of greenish patina that you get on um, copper-based materials. So the bottom image with the, with the black background is what one of the buttons looked like when it came out of the field. It had a chunky kind of... Um, corrosive crust on it. Okay? So um, conservation involves removing some of that material, stabilizing it, and getting it to the point where it won't continue to deteriorate and we can preserve it, um, hopefully for exhibit and future study. So again, as I said, here's this picture again, just for reference. You can see the positions of the buttons down the chest, um, on the arm, up near the neck, maybe along the collar. So thinking about that in the terms of what clothing might have been like at the time, we look to some um, you know, Revolutionary War era clothing for some clues. Um, so in the late 18th century, buttons in general were primarily found on men's clothing. Women's clothing were usually um, fastened with things like laces and hook and eyes and things like that. So buttons generally reserved for men's clothing for the most part. Um, a lot of the typical aspects of, of men's clothing, coats, waistcoats, jackets had buttons, um, lots of them actually, you can see if you look at the, um, the pictures here. Um, sometimes there were also buttons on um, breeches um, and shirts, usually just for the collar. So, um, you know, any individual that was fully dressed would have the potential to have a, a large number of buttons. Um, these are some of the buttons that we found from Burial 2. There were 13 buttons found in association in the field with this individual, 10 down the front and 3 kind of off to one side. Um, and these buttons were identical. They were all basically the same size. They were plain. This is what they looked like once they were cleaned up. You can see that the conservation made a 
records. And I should say that that was done by our colleagues at Archaeological and Historical Services, which is an archaeological firm in Stores, Connecticut. Nick reached out to them, and they did um, some pro bono work to help us conserve these artifacts so we would be able to get information from them and possibly have them you know, for future display and exhibit. Um, so these were all plain buttons. Um, they're made of copper um, alloy material. They um, were identical in size and shape, very consistent, which is interesting. Um, so probably a jacket or a waistcoat, as Nick was saying. Burial 2 also had um, a couple of possible pewter buttons. Pewter, as metals go, is one of the worst ones that, to preserve in the ground. It really deteriorates very quickly. You can see from the state of this, this is as good as it's going to get with this button. Um, it was found near the rib area of Burial 2 but it suggests perhaps a different article of clothing or something of that nature. And this is the front and back of it. Um, some of the burial two buttons had fabric or textile remnants, which is really interesting. You can see in the picture here, the yellow arrow is kind of pointing to kind of a dark stain around the buttons. Um, so, you know, the initial thought was a textile or fabric from a waistcoat or shirt maybe was preserved because um, Cooper's metals can help to preserve organic materials because they help to neutralize the acids in the soil. So sometimes 